episode 171, Foot Strength and Shoe Sales. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Trusclair, and today we hear Dr. Colin Dombrowski's perspective. Join 2017 and 18 Podcast Awards-nominated host and best-selling author on Amazon as we get a behind-the-curtain look at all types of doctor and guest specialties. Let's hear a doctor's perspective. 2021, welcome, welcome. I'm glad you're tuning in today. This is a good episode. It's our first time having a Canadian certified podorthist. And he also is actually a doctor PhD style. So he does a lot of research into feet and plantar fasciitis and those types of things. And we'll discuss you know, more about what his credentials are. Uh, he also owns a 92-year-old shoe store. So we get to have some fun with you know, a long-standing business, retail during COVID, as well as being the person that creates inserts for people. And so it's a, it's a, it's a good conversation. Before we jump in, the role was reversed. And I was a guest on Dr. Kevin Christie's Modern Chiropractic Marketing. Uh, you can go to adoctorsperspective.net slash modernchiro to get to that link. And we talk about one sheets and CV creation. So he really was excited about what I did for him and uh, wanted, you know, just a return to favor. So really excited for that. Hope you enjoy it. There is a discount if you listen to his show. So it's a secret URL. As always, if you're getting value from the show, you can visit a doctorsperspective.net slash support. And there's everything from one buck to monthly contributions. It's a PayPal link versus um, Patreon, so we really appreciate it over here in Germany for your support. Well, Dr. Colin has written a few books. We'll discuss that as well. And that's it. Let's just go ahead and jump in. Doctorsperspective.net slash 171 for all the show notes and the transcript, typically within 24 hours of release. Let's go. Hashtag behind the curtain. Live from Germany and Ontario, today on the show, we're going to talk feet, and we're going to talk different ways than I think we have in the past, even from the podiatry series that we had, but um, he is going to be the author of nearly five books, if you can believe that. He has so much time, I guess, during corona. He's going to put out four books this year, Um, and then at the same time, he is just passionate about like plantar fasciitis and making sure that we just stop having foot pain, so please welcome to the show Dr. Colin Dombrowski. Well, thank you so much for having me on today. You betcha. Well, I love your get up already. Uh, you got a nice background and a nice uh, logo on the wall. So I'm pretty excited to see that just because I, I like branding and it's pretty cool. It's neither here oh, nor nice. there, I suppose. Nice. But uh, <laughs> Are you kidding? We're all business owners. I, I love the business part of my practice just as much as I love seeing patients. Yeah, it's pretty fun, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and hopefully we'll get some business advice and some of the questions later on. But uh, Wonderful. Let's jump in. You know, you don't have to go back too far as when you were in high school and college, but you've been a, a podiatrist for a while. And so where are you going or how did you turn into writing books and finding this passion and this calling that you have? No problem. So first of all, and and just to say, I'm a Canadian certified podorthist. So there's a little bit of a, of a difference there when it comes to scope of practice. So really, I focus strictly on the design manufacturer of foot orthotics and the rehabilitation that comes around that. So I don't do our scope of practice between us and a podiatrist are night and day different. Podiatry is like a real medical degree. Um, and I have a PhD, but I don't have an MD. And so uh, we really focus in on the mechanical side of orthotics, footwear and rehab. Wow. I completely missed that in the bio. <laughs> <laughs> no problem at all. 
Wow. So it was again a certified? A Canadian certified podorthist. All right. So this will be fun. Yeah. This is completely different. Okay. So this is explains why whenever I was looking at some of the questions to ask you with orthotics, why it kept coming up over and over again. Give us a little background more on the, what that is, and then we'll jump into some more questions. Yeah, no problem. So, I mean, certified podorthists are those people who are trained in the design and the manufacture of custom foot orthotics. So typically we'll go to school for an undergraduate degree in human kinetics or kinesiology. In my, in my case, it was health sciences. And then we go beyond from that into a postgraduate uh, degree program that certifies us to become podorthists. So we do another one year program with both online learning and in clinic learning that we are our national board certifications and then off we go. And so we focus really in that area. So specifically in the design and the manufacture of orthotics, bracing, compression stockings, and how that works to help somebody with pain from their feet to their lower back. Now, um, in different areas, you know, uh, different people will, will, some people will prescribe and provide. So from a podiatrist standpoint, they might actually be the ones both prescribing and providing a device. We don't prescribe orthotics. So we'll take prescriptions from family doctors and surgeons and podiatrists uh, and the like, and then we fill those prescriptions. And then we physically make the orthotics ourselves and take patients down that journey. Whoa. So you're the guy behind the scenes creating these orthotics. like. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm also the guy that uh, produces research on this specifically. So, um, you know, I'm one of few podorthists in Canada that have a PhD that actually practice. I'm an adjunct research professor at Western University where we do research using everything from biplanar fluoroscopy and CT imaging to uh, we have a, an, an eight camera Vicon motion capture motion capture facility um, in, in my facility. And then uh, we also use things like 3D printing and whatnot to be able to ascertain where what what these devices are actually doing when we get them in someone's shoe, you know. And and that was really the impetus for me to go on and do more graduate work was to really answer some of these questions as to why do orthotics work the way that they do? Do orthotics work the way that they do? And we've been able to publish some really interesting stuff more specifically and recently on casting. So whether you use a foam box or a plaster cast and how that might actually change motion of a foot in a shoe in real time using something like biplanar fluoroscopy. So what do we want? Is that a good option then using that style? Well, what we were actually found was that if you had a really low arch, that using a foam box cast was a little bit more effective at controlling the motion of the medial longitudinal arch compared to a plaster cast of someone's foot. And really, it was no different if you had a regular or a high arched foot. So, you know, it really comes down to the practitioner's um, um, choice when it comes down to things like time and, you know, cost and whether it's appropriate for the patient to do either foam box or plaster casting. Uh, but we do know that if we want to get some better control in one that that one Pez plane is conditioned, that foam box seemed to be the better the better choice. And that's and when you're saying that it's like when you put the weight on the foot into the the mold is better. It's actually a better mold of your foot. So when you build it, yeah, it's more custom to them versus the plaster where maybe it doesn't catch some of those nuances. Well, it you know with the foam box, we think we actually get some some pressure back up onto the foot to create more of an arch. And mm. so that might be what's actually giving us that better control without having to actually change the, the actual cast too much. You know, when you take a completely non-weight-bearing cast of somebody's foot, 
there's a lot of dressing that has to happen into a cast where you actually you take it, you've got to add plaster or remove plaster to be able to get what you what you're looking for, the sort of the desired effect at the end of the day. And so what I think we found was that this this method, which is very common, can actually be quite effective. How much and I know you wrote a kind of a book on this, too. You can get a foot and certain shoes, like the ones that I use, certain shoes I can't wear them in because it's too thick or the, you know, the box in the toes is too diff- is too shaped differently and so it doesn't fit or whatever. Or like the back of the heel isn't wide, isn't tall enough. So whenever you put it in, you, you fall out, you, you come out of the shoe and it's so stupid. How much does it matter? Like, are you wearing Nikes, Reeboks, Adidas? Does it, this stuff, it's not our dress shoes. How much does it matter based on the type of material that you make it out of? Now we had a little bit of a breakup there in the uh, in the in the signal, so I wanted to make sure I got your question right. Do you mean does it matter what kind of shoe we put an orthotic into? Pretty much. Oh, it, it matters greatly, and so you know I, I kind of like to say that we can't out orthotic a bad shoe, and so there's only so much that we can do with sub sort of suboptimal footwear for patients, and so a lot of what we do is spending time looking at the kind of footwear that would be appropriate for a patient's morphology, for how they move, for what their goals are. And then we, we really we really make sure that that's going to be matched up well to everything they're looking at doing. And I've got to tell you, you know, there's a lot of instances when we see patients who come through the door who don't need orthotics. What they need is, is, is footwear advice. They need to know how to buy the right kind of shoe. You know, I'm asked every day on what's the best shoe that's out there. Of course. Uh, because... You know, I also own a, a fairly large family shoe store and a running shoe store here in London, Ontario, on top of our medical practice. We have hundreds of thousands of dollars of inventory in, in our stuff, and we do a lot of footwear. And I'll tell you that that there is no one best shoe. I can't say that New Balance is better than Saucony, which is better than Asics or any of that stuff. Oh, you know, Hoka. above. Exactly. Yeah. And Hoka makes a fantastic shoe. But, you know, above a certain dollar threshold, you know, so in that sort of $135 to $140 range and up, they're all great shoes from those manufacturers. The questions are, which one is going to be the best one for you? And that's so different in in, in between people. I can take two people with the exact same foot, the exact same problem, the exact same way of walking, and they wind up with two completely different shoes that are comfortable to them. Does that have to deal with body weight as well as male versus female versus are you a runner? Are you, do you stand all day at a, you know, you add in how tight are your calves? You know, are you one of those people that walk around by slamming their heels into the ground? Are you like a loud walker, you know, at the end of the day, all of those things come, come into play on what you're going to find comfortable. And then you can get into effect of, you know, uh, uh, how many sensory receptors do you have per square inch of your skin that make you more sensitive to things like pressure and heat and vibration and you know, all of that stuff. Mm. And, uh, you know, all of that really, really aids in what are how we perceive comfort. Because comfort's the biggest predictor of success with really any of this stuff, footwear, orthotics, you know, all, all of it. And so, you know, what's comfortable to one person is very uncomfortable to another. Which is why some people can rock a thin shoe, a barefoot shoe, or one of those really thick New Balance walking on air type of soles, right? That's it. That's it. You know, so so on on that thing specifically, you know, I kind of look at it two ways. Yes, one person's going to find that comfortable and one person isn't. But one of the avenues that we look to 
to be able to predict whether someone's going to be able to do well with a, you know, a really thin soled shoe, more like a barefoot style of shoe or a minimalist style of shoe, because those things are really are different, right? People often kind of use the term minimalist and barefoot interchangeable, and they're really not. No. So a, a barefoot shoe is just a foot covering, right? Something that's going to protect your skin against the ground and that's it. Where a minimal shoe has a bit of that midsole that's built into it that does have some structure elements to it. And biomechanically, those two things are very different. You know, it really has to do with how your body can deal with the the demands of repetitive soft tissue loading. And mm. some people just have the capability of being able to handle so much more than others. And uh, it's it's figuring where you lie on that spectrum can make a big difference as to whether or not you do well with one or the other. So in your opinion, it's not that barefoot or minimalist shoes are bad for people. It's just that some people are going to find theirs comfortable versus a big squishy shoe. Exactly. It's, it's figuring out what part, like where you lie on that spectrum and, and what that actually means for you. So there are some people that have in my practice that have tried, you know, to go more minimalist in their running who, despite doing everything right, they've consulted the best physios. They wore a transition shoe. They went into it really, really slowly. They still got injured. And there are other people in my practice who went, oh, I'm going to give this a go, took everything out of their shoe. Orthotics went from a, you know, a really cushioned 12 millimeter midsole shoe to running literally on their barefoot the next day and did fine with it. It's figuring out again where, where you lie on that spectrum. You know, I love those kinds of minimalist shoes for certain like really specific applications. I think they can have huge benefits to people. Um, it's just a question of using them correctly. So let's just dive in a little bit because I know there's like heel cups and like you said, the midsole diam uh, thickness and everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, someone who has like a flat foot, let's just mm -hmm. use generic terms, a flat foot, and yeah. they have someone who has maybe like a plantar fasciitis. Are there mm -hmm. certain things that as a, as, a, as a chiropractor, physical therapist, podiatry, you know, we can all sort of recommend these inserts and types of shoes. Is there something that we should be leaning towards for different conditions? Like you probably want something that has this style and every shoe company has three styles of that kind of thing you're looking for. Well, for somebody who has a really flat foot, so if we're taking that into consideration yeah, here and you're saying, does someone have these kinds of styles? They they do. And so there's two different things to look at. One is going to be the the overall biomechanical control that that shoe is going to offer. So, you know, you might be familiar with the different categories of biomechanical control into cushioning, stability and motion control. And a lot of people will say, hey, you know, if you're a really flat foot, go into a motion control kind of shoe. Well, you know, that's 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 really good advice if you want to peg everybody to one hole kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, on our end, what we're looking to do is to make sure that that shoe fits their foot the best that it can first. So really what we want to do is look at the overall shape of it. And so if you take somebody who has a really straight, really flat, very wide foot, and you put them into something that's very narrow and very curved, which is what, you know, a lot of cushioning shoes can look like sometimes, then that might not match up well with their foot and it might not allow them to be able to walk the way they want to and can cause some, can cause some issues. So the very best thing to do is make sure that the shape of the shoe matches the shape of their foot, mm. first of all. And then from there, from a biomechanics standpoint, if you think that they need cushioning, well, you look for that in a shoe that offers great cushioning. If you think that they need some biomechanical control, then certainly you can look for features that offer biomechanical control. But, you know, going going with the kind of panacea of saying this shoe is the only thing that this foot type can get into is just something we try to avoid, you know, now, nowadays. 
you know, even my wife, she likes to run and was pregnant, had a kid. Her feet, I mm-hmm. guess, got a little bit bigger. And, you know, when she would run, one of her toes would always go black. And she's like, what in the world? Yeah. These are new shoes. And then she finally just was like, you know what? I'm going to get a little bit bigger. I think there was a sale on a good pair of shoes, you know. And she's like, ah, just a little bit bigger. Well, guess what? The only shoe that doesn't mess with her is the size that's one half bigger. And so she's like, that's oh, it. man, maybe that's what it was the whole time. And we were like, jeesh. Yeah, especially after pregnancy. I mean, you know, up to a year later, when you look to the literature, um, you know, women's foot shape can change up to sort of a half a size to a full size and a half is what wow. the research will tell you. And so, you know, it's usually worse with the first pregnancy, but can happen up to about your third pregnancy. Uh, you know, you need to look at all your footwear. My wife, when she had our first, used to be an eight and a half in everything. Um, now she's a nine to a nine and a half. And we had to throw out, you know, lots of lots of shoes. Lots of shoes. Is it just the ligaments stretching and not being able to come back like they used to? Exactly. That relaxing hormone really likes the ligaments of your feet. And, Oof. you know, that combined with, you know, a little bit of weight gain and swelling, you know, can can um, can reduce the height of your medial longitudinal arch and increase the length of your foot. Yeah, I was about to ask you. So talking about pregnancy, I know that's one of the books that you're going to have coming out. What mm-hmm. are you finding is the typical issues that they have, and is it easy to fix? Well, it, you know, once they have a, a permanent foot shape change, no, that that really isn't easy to fix. It's just easy to deal with, you know, after mm-hmm. after that point. The real question just becomes, is from a from a function standpoint, is you know, if if they have all this new ligament laxity, what ends up happening with the muscles that are supposed to control those joints? Yeah. And so, you know, that that is where you know you want to talk to good, uh, you know, chiros and physios and you know, kinesiologists and people that can really help to strengthen both their foot and the supporting musculature of the ankle. Uh, and even higher up into the hip, you know, you have a little bit of hip dysfunction that's weak. And then all of a sudden your foot starts to move a bit more because of pregnancy. And one is just going to exacerbate the other one. And so our treatment approach has always been that I, I try to, you know, stay away from always blaming one thing for the other and oftentimes using both in concert. And that usually ends up giving us better outcomes. Have you found that having a PhD and doing all the uh, research that you've done has changed the offerings you have in your retail store? Oh, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. I, like I, you're just like, I don't even carry this or this lower than this price or this type of brand. I just don't even care because I know it's going to be detrimental to these kids. You know, I, I think where it's come out to is uh, our thought process has changed and, and evolved with time. You know, there's a slide that I stole from the very first class that I ever took in statistics. And that was uh, a quote from Dr. Sidney Birdwell for Burwell from the Harvard Medical School. And it was that half of what you're going to be taught in 10 years will be proven to be wrong. The trouble is your professors don't know which half. And so, (laughs) (laughs) you know, when I go back and look at what I was taught when I first went through all of this in terms of how we structure feet into different, you know, types of footwear recommendations, you know, that's definitely changed over time. And certainly, you know, the buying habits have gone from, you know, more structured, more stability kinds of things to more, let's get more breadth and more depth to fit someone's individual foot, you know, with the proper width, with the proper length, with the proper style of shoe, and not just say, oh, you move a little bit, let's put you over in here and and figure that out for them. Do you happen to uh, sell any shoes that are like 500 and like $5,000, like some of these YouTube videos? No, no, we no. don't. No, I think our, items. our most expensive shoe that we sell um, is the Asics Metaride um, on the athletic side. And it is a phenomenal carbon-based running shoe, like a carbon rocker running carbon shoe. Carbon-based. Yeah. And uh, so, it, you know, the carbon, carbon four-foot rockers are a really big thing right now. And, 
you know, um, for people who come in on the performance side and want a performance running shoe, it's fantastic. But as a clinician, man, some of these, some of these shoes that are coming out, their clinical use is just amazing. You know, you mm. take people who have first MTPOA or ankle osteoarthritis or midfoot osteoarthritis who maybe don't want to get surgery or who can't get surgery or who've had poor results with other things, man, can we change their, their function and their outcomes with some of these, some of these shoes. So we're using them not even near what they were intended for, uh, but they have great outcomes with some patients. What's some of the names that we should be looking for that that sounds pretty fancy just to like go online and like, what do these shoes do? So if you're looking at some of the carbon shoes that are out there right now, the Azith Metarize is a phenomenal shoe. Uh, Saucony has one called the Endorphin Pro. Uh, I believe Hoka, their one's called the Carbon X. Um, and um, um, New Balance is one that's escaping right now. I think it's the Fuel Cell, but um, they've got a carbon shoe as well. And so, you know, when it comes to footwear and the kind of footwear that we carry in our retail store, we always look at it with our pedorthic lens and w- with our clinician hat on to say, Hey, if, if, if we're going to look at the particular characteristics this shoe offers, whether it's heel drop or the amount of rocker or the amount of toe spring or the level of cushioning or, you know, the, the thickness and squishiness, which is called the durometer of the midsole, how do each one of these things actually relate to an individual person's pathology? And how would we then recommend one shoe over another based on that? And, uh, you know, and also based on the literature. And so that's always the lens that we look at stuff through. That's cool. Well, that yeah. definitely changes what you're purchasing. That's for sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, oh, I can't even imagine having that much uh, retail space and, and inventory where, hey, do you have to hire someone to manage all of that aspect of when to put things yeah, on sale yeah. and what to purchase for because sure. these colors suck? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what ended up happening was that we, we had a, a clinic business that started almost 20 years ago. And for a long time, it was just me and an assistant that uh, that ran that ran the company. And then about five years ago, we decided we were going to expand. And one of the one of the stores in London that has a 92 year history, like a you know a generational store, we had been referring patients to to buy their footwear for over 15 years. And a few years ago, once they started talking about retiring, I figured, oh, someone's going to step in and, and, you know, take it up because they did all the orthopedic stuff and all the hard to fit feet and the stuff that would make other places, you know, kind of cringe and, and, and not be excited. They loved that stuff. And so mm. it was the, it was always bang on in terms of their fit. They knew that someone could walk in the door, they'd look at their feet and go, I know exactly what you need. And it was just one of those places. And so, when no one stood up to buy them, I literally had two women in my office the same day crying. They were that distraught because they were so hard to fit. They couldn't buy shoes anywhere other than this store. So we decided, okay, we're going to step up. And so we entered into the, all of our negotiations and ended up taking over the store about a year later. Since then, we've per- also purchased a performance running shop as well. And so we've got that under our belt, too. Uh, yes, 100%. It, it takes a village to uh, to run something like that. Are y'all doing okay? Oh, yeah. You know, over the coronavirus stuff, you know, had you talked to me the first two months, it, it was hairy like everybody else, you know. Yeah. But uh, we have um, – I've been in business here for 20 years, and we have a, just a phenomenal support group of people. Uh, our, our patient population is amazing, and they stepped up huge. They bought, you know, uh, online, and we did a lot of porch deliveries. Uh, even even when the clinics were closed. And so it really helped get us through those really lean, really hard months. 
Because as you know, as a, as a business owner, I mean, those non-deferrable expenses, if you're a footwear retail, 120 grand worth of shoes come in, you're paying for them 90 days later, no matter whether you're open or not. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, hey, I just got some old shoes here because uh, we haven't had any business. Um, <laughs> size nines are out. Where's the short? <laughs> yeah, that's it. it for sure. Yeah. You do some Facebook marketing. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. That's fantastic. I'm glad that you're, you're making it. Okay. Let's dive in. You've got some books. Give us, if you don't mind, a couple minute overview of each of them and we'll just kind of sure. go from there. So the one that we put out in 2016 called the plantar fasciitis plan, free your feet from morning pain was my attempt to uh, help a greater swath of patients. You know, um, I've been seeing people one-on-one for a number of years now and just wanted to help more people than just being able to, you know, just to scale sort of the stuff that we tell people day in, day out, you know, more than half of my day is spent seeing patients with plantar fasciitis and so over that amount of time, we've treated thousands of cases of plantar fasciitis. And, you know, what we've really noticed was that there seems to be lack of a good treatment algorithm when it comes to start with this and then move to that. You would be shocked how many people come to me and say, yeah, I've had plantar fasciitis for, for five months or six months or nine months. And I say, great. What are the things that you've done? Well, the first thing I did was a cortisone shot. Terrible. Whoa. What do you mean the first thing you did was a cortisone shot? Did you take care of any of the mechanical determinants, any of the risk factors, any of the things? No, I, that was the, the first thing I was given. Have you done any stretches, any exercises? No. So, you know, we, we years ago put together this this little pamphlet, this little handout that we would give people. It was like 15 pages. And um, I couldn't tell you how many people every day came back to me and said, man, that was awesome. I started the exercises. I feel better. To, like, like the next morning, I felt better. And so... We wrote the book with, with really that in mind, was to give people the opportunity to, to read this and say, here's the algorithmic approach that we give to all of our patients that come through the door. You know, I don't believe in orthotics as a first-line treatment for acute plantar fasciitis, unless mm. you have significant risk factors, right? If you're diabetic and you're at risk for a foot ulcer, then yes, 100%, you know, that's first-line no matter what. Uh, or if you have other chronic conditions, if you if you have rheumatoid arthritis or other types of foot osteoarthritis, then sure. But, you know, if you're a, you know, 35-year-old mom who decided that she was going to go back and do a little bit of running as a New Year's resolution, and all of a sudden, you know, your heel starts to get sore when you wake up first thing in the morning when you take those first 10 steps, there is a whole litany of things you can do before you go and try orthotics. And so that's what the plantar fasciitis plan is really about, is to give people the tools to be able to either use themselves to... Uh, get better at home or to know what to ask their specialist next. You know, what was really nice about this book is that we consulted orthopedic surgeons, primary sports medicine doctors, physiotherapists, massage therapists to say, hey, what are the questions to ask? What are the things that you need to do? What are the things you need to be talking to your doctors about? And just to give people more information in terms of how to manage their own case better. And then the next book we have coming out in uh, in the next few weeks is called uh, The Foot Strength Plan. And it's really all about how to keep your feet healthy and strong through ranges of motion and, and basic strengthening exercises. Uh, it also talks about the, the subtitle of that one is The Truth About Orthotics and More. You know, there's lots of scary stuff on the Internet these days saying how orthotics are collectively making the arches of the, the world weaker and uh, <laughs> how that, you know, when you walk in a when you walk in a shoe or when you walk in an orthotic, you're walking in a cast that doesn't let the foot bones move. And why would you ever want to walk in a cast? It's just so ridiculous, you know, um, when it comes to some of this stuff. 
maybe 20 years ago before the technology's changed. I feel well, like it's not even, it's the not even material that. It's these just, days. Yeah, you know, and, and just people's people's mindsets. So we, we've gone from I, I find that the, the age that we live in digitally has taken us from uh, uh, practitioners that value a more holistic, you know, medium approach to everything to more of a clickbaity, dualistic, this is good and that's bad and I'm right and you're wrong and this is the only thing you should do. This is the thing you should never do. And mm-hmm. I, I, I run away from that stuff screaming just just because people are individual and, and what works for somebody is not going to work for somebody else. And just because you did good with barefoot running doesn't mean that your your uncle, your aunt or your brother or anybody else should try that uh, because they might get really hurt. This sounds like a really interesting book because – so much of stuff that we do can be related from the hips to the foot, from the foot back to the hip or the back. Yep. So to kind of have a plan, uh, what to look for, what like a flowchart. <laughs> but anyway, one of those that you can take your book, kind of flowchart it, and then kind of put into, okay, you need stretching. Well, these are the stretches that I like or I've seen to help in the past. And then you just have like a nice re- repeatable procedure when your patients come in. I, I like that. Yeah. And then the other books, um, uh, you know, they're all they're all at various stages of production right now. So we won't chat about those ones too, too much just yet because, you know, I, I don't know when they're coming out. But they're all slated to come out this year, other than my children's book, which is all about how to say thank you and why saying thank you is awesome. Oh, good. I was going to ask you that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I have a, I have a three and a, and a seven-year-old and started about a year ago when one of them, you know, just had a bit of an issue with gratitude. And so I said, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to write something fun. It's coming out through Freezing Press in uh, probably two, two months. So what kind of animal or the... Uh subject no no and so it, the the title is called a special thank you so it's just all about saying thank you and uh when when you go through the illustrations it's it's actually my family and so i i found this beautiful children's book illustrator that i just fell in love with his work and i gave him pictures of my family and just things that are are really relevant to us and so like we have this restaurant that we go to so they use their logo and i'm a i'm a, a huge watch collector actually a hobby watch maker and so i've got <laughs> watches and different, you know, things. And it's, it's just, it was, you know, their Montessori classroom and just all of that stuff is, is, is all throughout this book. So I wanted to write something that they'd be able to take for the rest of their lives and, and remember that their dad did something for them. Wow. Okay. Part-time watchmaker. What does that look like? Oh man. So, I mean, are you Rolex on the side over here? Yeah, you know it. And so I've been a uh, watch collector for the better part of 15 years, you know, from new to vintage, a lot of vintage. And so about five years ago, I decided that I wanted to learn more about the inner workings. And like anything you can learn on, you can learn online these days. I bought a kit and uh, started, started learning, broke a lot of stuff, have started going through uh, watchmaking school now. And yeah. Wow. And so my, my 40th birthday, I actually made myself a, uh, a pocket watch movement wristwatch. That's just uh, a lot of fun. I make them for friends and family on, you know, big events and things like that. And it's, uh, it's my form of meditation, you know, because when you're trying to place something at the half a millimeter on something else, it needs a pretty steady hand and a lot of concentration. So I know a guy that does pin, you know, an ink pin, like a ballpoint pin, and it's mm. amazing what the guy can come up with. I don't know if that's maybe that's that's probably a lot easier, you know, casting something into a pin shape versus building a watch. But that's pretty wild because you can use so many different kind of materials, and there's a reason why some of these cost ten grand versus uh fifty nine dollars. So oh, hundred percent. Yep. And- even on the me- on the mechanical movement side, you know some of the stuff that's made in um, Switzerland versus some of the stuff that you see 
in other areas that are a bit more mass mass produced. I mean, the quality is just so different. Oh wow! So they really but like with everything these days too. You know, it's uh, it's like that. All right, so we'll switch a little bit. That was that was fun. More around my curiosity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you're marketing, you can discuss it with the orthotics, with the soul science, or with the uh, the shoe company. But what are you doing? What's what's your best bang for your buck these days? Social proof, and that's that's it. We there's so many different ways that we can look at our our, our marketing, and, and we've tried it all from really traditional radio and you know newspaper type of things to to Facebook and Google ads and you know all of that stuff. And it's really nice to be able to quantify what's happening on the Facebook side and Google side when you know who's booked in where from those clicks. But the mm-hmm. thing that's moved the needle for us is social proof marketing. And so it's uh, you know asking for a review. You can spend your time as much as you want to telling other people about how great you are, but if their friend or their cousin or you know someone that they they know trust and respect says I went here and they fixed me and they're awesome. Well, that's worth so much more. And so we've spent a lot of time building out that that part of it. Do you use the written in videos and all of that in like for Google ads and Facebook? We use a, we use a little bit of all of it um, within the confines of our, our own code of ethics in when it comes to marketing. So there are some things on the side that we just can't do. And so we, we do as much as we can within the boundaries of, of what our college says is, is, is okay. Okay. Yeah, that's true. There's always some kind of board out there. That's it. That's it. We're able to do a little bit more with the retail, but when it comes to the the uh, uh, the pedorthic side, the services side, we we do have to watch what what we're saying. Yeah, Australia's like that too. They're pretty intense with their regulations sure. on web pages. Um, so you married? You have kids? In the interview, we always like to end it with uh, some fun questions about that. So yeah. if you don't mind, how in the world are you able to take more time off and keep your love alive with your family? I have an amazing team that allows me to do whatever I need to and not worry about it. That's it. Uh, we and we take care of them like like they're like they're gold. Um, you know that that is it. Without my team, I would not be able to do anything. I, I wouldn't even be able to book this podcast. And so it all comes down to team. It all comes down to the people who we have here that support one another um, to the end goal. What were you looking for when you hired him? What is there some certain characteristics that you definitely are like? Hey, I need to have this in this whether for a certain role we, or anything. We hire for fit and then we train for skill. If you're not a culture fit, you don't work here. If you don't have the, the skill, but you're a culture fit, we'll train you. That's really the main thing we look for when, when we're going for, uh, for that. And, and, you know, somebody who has an ethical outlook on, on provision of care. You know, there are way too many people that, that don't take that, that, that ethical road, especially early in your career. It's easy to, you know, let your ethics and your morals bend a little bit and, uh, you know, to be able to get a sale when you're hungry. And, uh, you know, people who uh, who stick by what they believe in, uh, always, those are the ones that we hire. Do you have an example of one that didn't do that and it backfired? <laughs> we do. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I've been bitten a couple of times before, but uh, there, there's no need to dwell on that kind of stuff. And so, okay. uh, right. yeah. It's yeah. not 100% every time, but when you figure it out, you're like, all right, we got to make some changes. Well, and, you know, it, it was because we've been bitten once or twice in the past that, you know, we started making some really hard rules on, you know, who's going to work here. Because at the end of the day, you know, it, it just takes one bad hire to, to spoil, you know, what could take a decade to build a culture. And wow. so, we we will always hire for culture fit first and um, uh, and train the skill. Did you happen to take any kind of business classes or training programs um, that are out there? 
I did. I, I had a business education in two different ways. One was the School of Hard Knocks. My dad was the uh, one of the executives at Radio Shack in Canada um, oh. while I was growing up. And so I spent a good swath of my childhood going into work with him and talking with him and listening to him on conference calls. And, you know, I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from his guidance. And uh, he ended up working with me before he passed. And uh, those were some of the best years. Um mm-hmm. Uh, some of the best years of my professional life, which was which was great. Actually, my whole my whole family works with me. My, my brother, my mom, and that's been that's been great. Um, and then I did um, a program called Sporting Goods Business at Sir Sanford Fleming College uh, here in Ontario, which uh, is really focused. If you want to be a rep in the sporting goods business, then you know that 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 business program was really geared towards that specifically. So I did that. But then ended up dropping out two months before I was going to graduate to come to Western University here to do what I do now. Ah, okay. And, you know, didn't look back. So I didn't actually finish that uh, that degree. No, that's okay, though, at this point, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, 10 years and a PhD later. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, certainly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Uh, okay, so what are some web pages that we need to check out for you? You know, if you want to check out the business page, it's soulscience.ca. And so that's where we, you know, a lot of patients will go to, to you know, learn about what we do and uh, more about orthotics and some of the conditions and how we can help them. And then uh, for the book stuff and some of the other things, there's a website we're just about to launch called stuffaboutfeet.com. On there, you can get all of my books. You can listen to prior podcasts that we've been on. You can see we have a, a free course on uh, some basics of foot strengthening. Uh, uh, you're going to see a lot more come out of that site in the next year. And it's so S-O-L-E. S-O-L-E. Not like soul music. Yeah. The last time we were at a big event, we had somebody who maybe had one too many drinks and asked if we were a, 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 a church group. And uh, I said, nope, no, no, we're not. And so no, no. it's all about feet. So, <laughs> you should learn yeah. how to spell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You've got this experience through retail, through science, and providing lots of help for patients and things. Mm-hmm. On the business side, what do you find maybe for like a young doctor or someone maybe in the middle of their career where they're kind of getting burned out? Maybe they have a lot of high student loans. What's something that we can do, I guess, to um, persevere, to, to make it, to become a better leader? Um, just advice that you wish you knew maybe like 10 years ago that you would you know, give your kids when they're 22. You know, on, on that end is getting really clear on your why, getting really clear on why it is that you do what you do every day. And I think some of that stuff we can get lost in, right? I mean, we all started being in healthcare at some point because we wanted to make people's lives better. Then, you know, especially if you're a solo practitioner running everything where you're, you know, from soup to nuts doing all of it, sometimes you can lose a bit of that passion and forget why you're in doing what you're doing. So reconnecting with some of your patients on how you make a difference in their day-to-day lives, I find can sometimes be the re-energizing that you need uh, to be able to, to get back to, to being excited about your practice again. You know, because at the end of the day, a lot of us want to, you know, um, uh, chase things like growth and we want to be, we want our practices to be bigger and we want them to be, you know, have more locations and all of this stuff. And that that really isn't isn't necessarily the goal. Uh, at the end of the day, it's you know if if you make outcomes the the primary thing that you know you focus on and that what gets you excited to get up and do what you do, then growth will come naturally. It's two different questions, but they might blend for you when I ask them. Mm-hmm. One would be some of the best metrics to track in a business, maybe a doctor's office, or maybe we have a side hustle like with supplements or you know shoe mm-hmm. stores, and then also. 
how to know when to fire somebody. So that's why I said they might be interrelated. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So, you know, first, first of all, I mean, the, 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 the first KPI on the firing side is, is, is culture fit, right? At, at, at the first, at the first signs of culture fit, uh, or, or, or a mismatch that that's when that person goes. No, no questions asked, you know, there because you, you can't let that pervasively change the culture of, of your business. And so we all know that one person that maybe we're holding on for and we're hoping that they're going to change. You know, at, at the end of the day, you know, having having those crucial conversations and protecting what you've built over the last little while, I think is paramount. In terms of KPIs, you know, every business is so unique, you know, when it comes to the things that they track and the metrics that they want to look at. If I was to offer any suggestions, it's going to be look at leading metrics, not trailing ones. So what are the things that you're going to see today that's going to predict how your, your business health two weeks from now? Not the things that you're measuring today from two weeks ago. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Because at that point, it's too late. It, it, it's too late. You know, it, it's too late to say something's not working or it's too late to say I need to turn this knob over here a little bit more uh, to be able to do it. And it could be that if you're in a new practice that doesn't have enough patients, it could be simply how many leads came in and what were the conversion on those leads. And, and if you're not doing well enough in your marketing, how, how do you change it? It could be that if you're a huge practice that, you know, is booked with a two week waiting list, the question becomes then is what, what do your conversions look like at that point? And are you seeing more people, but making less money? Which is very, very common when businesses get larger. It, 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 this, this is really interesting phenomenon where, you know, you've got more patients booked in your schedule, but you know, you're, you're less profitable than you were before. And so it's making sure that the people who do end up making it through the gatekeepers are actually appropriate referrals. Because it's funny how much more you actually have to make to recoup the cost of the next assistant or the next doctor that you have to hire. It's not it. 20 more people usually. It's it's a substantial amount more to make it really profitable. Which is why finding your point of scale makes sense. Because let's say you run a $500,000 practice and you make $100,000 at the end of the year. Automatically, we think if we have a million-dollar practice, we'll have $200,000 at the end of the year. And sometimes it's not the case. Sometimes you double in size and you have less retained earnings. And that next profitability point might not come to 1.2 or 1.4 or $2 million. And do you want to work that hard? Exactly. Exactly. You know, my, my friend Jason Gaynard, who has a podcast called uh, Community Made, has an episode that's called Scaling is Stupid. And it's... <laughs> One of my favorite episodes to go back and when I think that, you know, my ego is making me think that my business needs to be bigger for the, the face value of saying that I have a practice with 15 locations and 20 specialists. If, if that's getting out of check, I always go back and give a listen because there's some great words of wisdom in there. Real quick, because you made a comment several times. How do you know or is there any wrong way to define your cultural fit? Like, does that mean you can have like I want a happy we make jokes type of practice. Some people are super serious when you walk in. You're like, whoa, what's going on? Is that the culture we're talking about or is there certain yes. other things? Yes, that's it. So if, if you have a super serious culture, you don't hire the, the, the jovial, you know, wants to chat and get in everyone's face kind of person. If you have a super happy type of culture, you don't want to hire someone who's who's going to look down on, you know, that kind of stuff. It's It's really... Figuring out the, the business that you want to build and the culture that you want to build and the day-to-day -day interactions that you want those people to have with your customers and your, your patients. Find the ones that it's their life's, it's their life's goal to do that.
because there's so many of us, you know, that are, that are out there that are motivated, you know, in different ways. And it's just finding the right ones. And yeah, uh, I believe it. I, yeah, I, I, it, it, it might come to me as I was, uh, as I'm talking about it, but a, a friend of mine has a great hiring practice and it's, they put out a job post and say, you know, if, if you want, if you want a, uh, a job here, send us a video and just say how, how many, you know, explain to me why you'd be a great fit for here. And you, whenever you put up a job post, you'll see, you'll get a ton of resumes, you know, that are there and people who don't even read what the requirements are. And of the people who send you the videos, you can watch and see what kind of demeanor and how they put themselves out there and how they put themselves forward. And it's those people that, that, that you, you like of the videos that then you'll read their resumes and see whether or not you want to bring them in. And, and we've you certainly used that before in our hiring. I applied for a job, I think in the Cayman Islands or I don't know, someplace random like that. And that's what they wanted. They wanted a video and they yep. didn't really give you very much to go on. So yep. <laughs> like, put some video i put some pictures in there i did a voiceover i did all these different things i was like i threw my podcast in there i was like i got a call back and it's not working out which is good because then a hurricane like destroyed the entire island and uh so i'm kind of glad you know things work out sometimes so i don't know whatever happened to that clinic but uh anyway before we go you've already mentioned some podcasts any books that you think that we should definitely check out before you go? The one book that I've reread time and time again because I enjoy the story is Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. It's one of my favorite books. And the, the audiobook narration is just brilliant. It's really, really well done. So, you know, it, it's the whole story of how, how from Nike's beginning as Blue Ribbon Sports all the way lessons uh, in that book. And so, you know, from a memoir perspective, there's that one. But from a business perspective, Ryan Holiday's Perennial Seller, phenomenal book. Yeah, about how how to build a product that will stand the test of time, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, uh, and and how to do that specifically. You know, whether you're an author or whether you're, you know, making someone an orthotic uh, and building a business that will stand the test of time, it's it's a great book to change your mindset. I've got an Amazon page with all the book recommendations from everyone and I've definitely hit it a couple of times, so yeah. that's a good one. That is a good one. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Colin Dombrowski, I really appreciate your time and uh, going into the expertise that you have for our audience. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Another great interview has ended. While you're on your phone, click that review button. Write up a nice review for me. Five stars if you could. As everyone says in the industry, it'll help other people to find us when we have enough rankings not to mention i'll mention you and your review on an upcoming episode if you follow me at all on instagram you know you only get one link so i use a link tree and so it's a doctorsperspective.net slash links with an s and that's going to give you everything you need to know the top episodes of 2017 and 2018 the podiatry series dentist acupuncture series holiday 2017 financial series how to write a review how to support the show, like buying a cup of coffee, getting swag, like t-shirts, the Today's Choices Tomorrow's Health book, that's the blueprints for better health, exercise, picking food correctly, and financial. And then, of course, bundle packs, which can get you the no-needle acupuncture book, 40 common conditions, including the electric acupuncture pin, at a great deal. The resources page has some of the products that I like. It's a affiliate style, so if you buy something from them, I get a piece of that. 
just like on the show notes pages. If you buy a book from clicking that link, I get a small piece of that as well. So I really appreciate that. Things like Screencast-O-Matic, Pure VPN, Missing Letter, JLab Speakers, ProLone, Edge, or Hawk Grips. Uh, once again, if you do need any coaching on how to improve some of your blood work, drop weight, and the ProLone diet, fast mimicking diet, five-day plan, let me know as well as if you just need some coaching, whether it's health, whether it's marketing, whether you need some practice growth, etc. Reach out. Facebook, Justin Trosclair, MCC. Of course, at a doctorsperspective.net on the top right, you got all the social media icons that you can imagine. Click your favorite and reach out. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please tell a friend, pass it along. You can go to .net slash listen. It's just that easy. It'll open up right in your app. And don't forget, I appreciate you. Listen, critically think, and integrate. See you on the mini-sodes on Thursdays and Saturdays. Hope you're enjoying those. I'm definitely having fun summarizing these podcasts in less than 10 minutes for you. You get the nuggets without having to waste your time. Have a great week. So sit back, take it in, and it's great what you